This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. And I've learned to find the red dots. There it is. So it's recording. We're going to um, talk about Sepulcher's book, Desert of Paradise. We're going to review the next ten pages. But um, as we were starting, uh, just before we got to recording, there were a few topics that came up, and I kind of feel like I want to touch on some of those just real quick, um, and then we'll get into the book. Uh, one is is that um, I used to talk about people using uh, uh, SketchUp, which is free, to, for 3D uh, drawings of stuff. And um, I want to point out that Alan Booker strongly recommends the use of FreeCAD, which I have not yet used, but it does run on Linux. I'm a Linux person, and so um, I'm going – I hope to try that out soon. But I kind of get the feeling that Alan Booker has a very strong influence over a lot of the people here at Wheaton Labs. And so I kind of feel like we're probably going to end up pretty much standardizing on the use of FreeCAD. Um, I don't know. Is anybody on this call – Used FreeCAD and have anything to say about it? Anybody? No? Okay. I'm installing it on my Linux box right now, so I'll let you know what I, All right. how it feels. Cool. <laughs> uh, an- another thing that came up was um, the discussion about, like, getting a, a truck. Um, and uh, And so specifically for living in western Montana. Um, and uh, I got to say that um, <clears throat> I'm – I <laughs> okay, so first, first I got to say, uh, some, uh, two different people wanted to – one person wanted to give me money. We wanted to buy something of mine that was like 100 bucks, and said, can I pay you in Bitcoin? And so I learned about Bitcoin, and I said, okay, sure. So, we, so I got 100 bucks, and then – then somebody else needed to pay me $400, and they had Bitcoin, but they didn't have cash, so they paid me in Bitcoin. So I got $500 in Bitcoin um, at a time when Bitcoin was worth 600 bucks, And uh, I just left it there. And now Bitcoin's somewhere around 55000 So I have enough to get a Cybertruck, which uh, apparently has just been announced that they will sell it to you for Bitcoin, and so it's kind of like, oh, yay, but they don't make them yet, exactly. They're going to come out, I think, later this year. Um, and uh, on top of that, i got to tell you that there's a guy who has been to Wheaton Labs several times and is keen on Bitcoin, and over the last five years, in fact, he's the guy with the $100 that got me started in Bitcoin, and he has predicted the future of Bitcoin several times, and he has been spot on every time. He says Bitcoin's going to hit 250000 by the end of this year, and it's currently at 55000 So, you know, for whatever it's worth, you know, I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing anything, and hell if I know. I'm just along for the ride. But, uh, all right. 
I'm thinking of getting a cyber truck. Now, when it comes to what kind of truck to get, I and, and there was a mention of getting a four by four. And I and I gotta say there's a difference between a four by four or a four wheel drive and all wheel drive. And and I gotta say that for whatever reason you're looking at four wheel drive, it's more important to get all wheel drive. Now, I'm gonna go just a little pinch beyond that. And I and it's like uh we've got a thread going at Permis about driving on on ice or driving in snowy conditions because some people really struggle with that or what they struggle with is the idea of doing it and not actually doing it and uh, i've uh, shared a bunch of videos and along this discussion that i've and i guess that the short version of it is is to say um snow tires are more important than all-wheel drive and so um, if you're not going to do snow tires, don't even bother with four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive. Doesn't doesn't make enough of a difference. Um, I have lived in a couple. I did live in one place, and I've been to some other places where if you don't have snow tires and all-wheel drive, you can't get out. And so um, on Mount Spokane, if if you didn't have snow tires and all-wheel drive. You'll be stuck there for five months out of the year. You're, you're not going to be able to get out during the icy season. Um, so it's, you know, so there's that. Um, the other thing is, is that when you're out there dealing with ice, if you're going to go and drive from one point to another, I don't look at the weather reports and stuff like that. I just go. And if it's slick, drive really slow. That's it. That's the whole secret. And then if you get, if you get stuck, do not spin your tires, not even a little. That's that's kind of it. If you can just follow those rules, you're you're set and you're all done. Um. All right. Then the next thing is is it's like uh, uh, I I you know I well I'm going to skip the part where we talk about community living and getting by with fewer vehicles. I'm just going to skip all that. Um. I think another thing that we kind of visited about a little bit. Before we started recording, uh, which I wish to kind of summarize, is when to retire. And and so uh, it can be hard to choose when you're like, you've got your nest egg set aside or your grub steak set aside, and you're, you're kind of set, and you're kind of thinking like, oh, when's it smart? When should I, when should I go? Should I go now? Should I go two years from now? Should I go six years from now? And um, I... I gotta say that for me, um, uh, I did not have enough of a grub steak set aside, but I did get to the point where I kind of felt like um, I was like like the drive to work got to feel ten times longer than it actually was, and uh, I started watching the clock and stuff like that. My heart was no longer in software engineering. But it's like all I could think about all day was permaculture. And um, and it's kind of like I struggled. I, you know, I, I did I did my work, and I think I did an, an excellent job. But the bottom line was is that um, I was ready, more than ready, to get out. And uh, so I, I may have stayed in a little longer than I should have. 
but uh, I, I kind of feel like when looking to retire, when you, when you get bit by the bug, it's like you, you just got to get out and go. Um, and that's, that's just fine. Okay. Some, that, was, that was a few quick notes, and uh, I'm sure for any one of those things, we could make a whole podcast out of it. Um, but relative to the book Desert or Paradise, oh, maybe before I talk about that, has anybody on this call seen the stuff for the Kickstarter, like the, the preview for the Kickstarter, the preview page for the Kickstarter? I have. It's awesome. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Yeah, it's a great it's video. Wonderful. We have put a lot of time into preparing for it and being well prepared. And I, I think it's really coming together. I think you're shortly after the uh, we record this podcast today, it'll be time to officially hit the submit button to Kickstarter Incorporated to get their approval. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking that the video turned out amazing. Um, I think our rewards are rock solid. Uh, I think we've got, we've come up with some new ideas for Kickstarter. I'm, I'm really nervous and excited. I'm super hopeful that we get funded and, uh, and maybe even beyond. Wouldn't that be something? I'm, it's like, I'm just nervous. I'm just nervous. But good. Thank you all for going looking at that. Um, and, uh, uh, thanks again. You are all, everybody on this call is a Patreon supporter. Thank you for supporting all this stuff. I, uh, I hope no one's getting frustrated by the, the amount of content we've been putting out since we've started recording in this fashion. Um, let's see. All right. Now, on to Desert or Paradise. We're going we're gonna to review ten more pages of Desert or Paradise, but before the call started today, there was a thing that was brought up. Apparently, here in the United States, it's difficult to find a copy of the book. I, I think I saw it was on Kindle. Like, you could get a Kindle copy for a regular Kindle price, like ten bucks or something. But the physical copies are a little hard to come by. And, um... And I kind of thought, really? So I popped out to Amazon, and sure enough, and apparently there's an outfit on there that says, yeah, we'll sell you a copy for a reasonable price. And uh, and so, Mark, how did that go? You bought a copy from them? How was that? Well, I, I sent them the money, and after about 10 days, I got a notification that, oh, here's your money back with no reasoning as to why. So maybe magically somebody else purchased it. So, you know, I don't have an Amazon Prime account, and I've noticed sometimes that when I order from Amazon, when I do or don't have a Prime account that the item is already in stock. But if you don't have a Prime account, when you hit the buy button, they, Amazon will wait around five days and say, okay, we've let that click go through now as punishment for not having a Prime account. And uh-huh. now we're, we, we've asked 
Bob to pull it off the shelf and send it your way. So there's just like a built-in latency unless you give them that extra 10 bucks a month or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, with this one, it said that there was, that they had one or two in stock. And so I placed that order and like at least a week later, I got this notification that the order was canceled. My money was going to be refunded at some point. And uh, yeah, it's like a total waste of time. And then we went and looked on Amazon and it, and they are now, advertising that they have the book in stock and that they want to sell it to you for that price. <laughs> Which kind of yeah. paints a picture of like, this is some sort of weird scam or something. So I have no idea what's going on there, but it's like uh, they're saying that they sell it, but if you say, okay, I'll buy that, then they're say, they wait 10 days and say, yoink, no, we don't have it. We just we just like playing this little game. <laughs> yeah, it's tempting to get the the Kindle version, but well, I've I've bought a couple books that way and have regretted it because in some of those books they'll have like a full page chart of you know some information, and when you're reading it on the Kindle, the format it's it's either super tiny and you have to zoom in and pan around a lot, which just doesn't work for me um, or it's just the, the detail seems to not be there so I have quite a few paper books that are permaculture in nature and I definitely prefer having them that way but there is certainly the, the the convenience of having one tiny device that has hundreds of books on it too uh, so long as you keep a charge you know it, it, that's another good option, but I would say for text only, anything that has charts or pictures, uh, I've learned not to buy it on Kindle. So, um, I used to sell the permaculture playing cards on Amazon and, um, it was, it, 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 it when I kind of did the math one time, it was, I kind of got the impression that I'm not even getting enough money back to pay for the printing of the cards. Um, they just have so many. So anyway, the, the short story is, is I no longer sell the permaculture playing cards on Amazon. And I just recently noticed that nobody has them. No one is trying to sell them on Amazon. Um, and uh, I kind of I wonder if there are other people like me that are just choosing to not sell stuff on Amazon anymore. It's just too hard. It, 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 they require so much. I'm going to say like like they they require of you some sort of mystical knowledge. Not only do you have to know how to use their stuff, but you also have to know how to use their stuff. And what I mean by that is, is that it's like, there's the stuff that you say that they say that you need to know. And then there's all this, this whole other school of dark arts on like how to get it to actually work. And so I'm just, and it's the, the first batch is 10 times more complicated than it needs to be. And then of course the second batch is 20 times more complicated than that. And so it's it's like, I don't want to, if I'm going to learn more things, 
it's going to be like stuff that's in the book we're reviewing today, not about the dark arts of how to sell stuff on Amazon. And so I'm going to leave that to other people that have learned all that stuff. Um, I'll just be, and, and so far, apparently, no one is doing it. Um, I know that none of my DVDs are sold on Amazon. Um, my book is sold on Amazon by Sean, my co-author, and uh, he keeps all of that. Uh, and then I just, and all of my stuff I just sell directly through Hermes. So, I don't know, I... I thought that it was distributed in the United States by Chelsea Green. Maybe Chelsea Green's kind of getting sick of Amazon shit. Or maybe they just stopped printing it. I mean, which is kind of weird. The, the book has such amazingly high ratings, you know. And, and my cards, I think, have a, a rating that's like a 148 reviews. And I think it's 4.8 stars, but... I don't know. It's just it's just too much to deal with. Katie, you got your hand up. What do you got to tell us? I do have the Kindle version, which I um I don't have a Kindle, but I do have an Android phone and there's an app. And I I have noticed that you do have to click on and then zoom into the pictures because on my phone they are really quite tiny. Um, but I am able to zoom in on it. So if you really want the book, maybe you'll get a paper copy later. But if you can read it uh, and look at the pictures on the on the Kindle version, if you if you feel okay, good idea. Well, all right, um, we ready to do this? Where's my book? There it is. Okay. All right, we're going to start today on page forty-eight, and I think we go to about page fifty-nine. If I remember right, there it is. Oh, and this is this has been a delicious little chunk of this book, too. Uh, the stuff about Tamara. Um, and uh, I I just kind of wanted to take the whole section about Tamara and read the whole thing into the podcast, but I feel that would be disrespectful to the publisher. So, um, Project Portugal, Water Landscape at Peace Research Center, Tamara. Uh, okay. I was invited to Tamara in March 2007. The question was, is it possible to feed 300 people with healthy vegetables using a space of 150 hectares in the dry south of Portugal? So 150 hectares, that's going to be about 380 acres or so. Uh, my answer was, yes, easily. Such a fertile and beautiful landscape should be able to provide even more than that. The abundant surplus could be sold or left for wild animals. I could see straight away that southern Portugal's dryness is a result of human wrongdoing and is not its natural state. Decades, if not centuries, of intensive and incorrect cultivation methods have resulted in the drying out of the land. The annual rainfall is little less than that of Germany or Austria, the only difference being that 
almost all of the rain falls in winter. Okay, I think, I think where Seth is, he gets about 30 inches of rain a year. And I know that I marked it later in the chapter. So Tamara gets 500 to 600 millimeters. So if it's 500, that's half a meter. That's going to be 39 divided by 2 is going to be about 20. So 20 inches. So 20 inches of rainfall. But when you look at the pictures of Tamara, like the before pictures, that is some pretty dry, scrubby country. I mean, you can kind of see that there are some trees in the before pictures. But I don't know. It looks to me to be a little dry and scrubby. What do you guys think? Very dry and scrubby. Okay. Um, I kind of feel like 20 inches of rain is pretty decent. Um, I mean, I, I estimate that where I am right now, that we get about 20. Um, at base camp, we don't. And I think the lab actually gets a few more inches than base camp. I think base camp might get just a pinch more than 20. And then I think that the lab, which is just a mile away as the crow flies, um, gets uh, probably close to 24. And this is based exclusively on looking at the kinds of soils that are here and the amount of growth that's here. So it's just a guess. I, I've been here seven years now, and I still haven't sat down to really measure it and try to get, you know, our own, like, hard numbers or anything. And uh, I, I can't help but think that there's, like, 400 people listening to this podcast right now losing their shit over, like, how that should have been the very first thing you do. And I kind of feel like... Uh, yeah, you know what? I think I think that's a that's a bit of a, a struggle that a lot of permies have is that they get they get new land and they make a list of ten thousand things that are all things to do in the very first hour, and then uh, let's see which ones you choose to do first. So um, I actually bought the gear to do it, but uh, and then I I would ask. I think I the first time was a gapper program was going on, and I, I assigned it to a gapper to put in and. So, yeah, we don't really have that anymore, <laughs> and all the comedy that that implies. And so, um, all right, blah, 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 blah. The key is is that about 20 inches of rain a year, and what I'm looking at in the picture looks much drier than 20 inches of rain a year, which makes me think they might have a fair bit of wind. Uh, amazing thing is, is that Missoula gets only 13 inches of rain a year, and it's got some greenness in the surrounding mountains and stuff like that, and some of them, and some of them are dry looking, on the, you know, depending on windward side versus lee side. And then I go over to Great Falls, which gets the exact same amount of rain every year, but the, they have uh, they're in the flat country, and the wind just never stops. And it looks like it is a, it, it looks much desertier. So I kind of wonder if um, this place has a lot of wind. They do kind of mention it a little bit here and there. Or is that the next property that we talk about? Anyway, I am, uh, 
I have another piece marked off on page 50. Does anybody have anything to say about pages 48 or 49? Page 50. Initially, they thought that my suggestions were too ambitious. The pros and cons were discussed. I then suggested that we go out and read the landscape and communicate with the plants and animals. I asked them to empathize with nature. In Tamara, a peace research community, everything should be in tune, in harmony with the animals, the plants, the earth, water, air, and the elements. I kept saying it, and eventually we reached an agreement. Work could begin. All right. I, I kind of feel like this is, uh, this is kind of the way a lot of this goes, is that you've got somebody who's like, I'm all about the permaculture, and then you sit down and talk to them about what to do or, or how to go about taking the next steps or whatever, and it's like, major pushback. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to do that. No way. That, that's just crazy. That's nuts. And so it turns out almost universally what people want is conventional landscaping and then they want to stick a flag in front of it that says permaculture. That's that's been my experience. It's not universally true. There are some people that are like bonkers about ponds and hugelkultur and berms and earthworks and and polyculture and all the things. They want to do it all, and that's that's awesome. Um, but it does seem like normally when people call in a consultant, including Sepp Holzer, that what they really want is different from what you're there to bring. Is there anybody Particularly like, like in suburbia, where you've got to fit in with all of your neighbors and not necessarily HOA, but you just don't want to be that outlandish person. So they want like the, the little tweaks, the permaculture tweaks that visually don't look any different, but somehow are magically different. I think that sometimes there's that. Um, I think, I mean... Yeah, sometimes there's that, and sometimes it's something else. But but mostly what it is is that we need to have we need to have more examples of magnificent permaculture systems, which is part of what Sep talks about in here. Is that uh, he wants the Tamara project to be a demonstration. Unfortunately, so we need more demonstration sites. That really does help. It really does. Although, uh, a lot of what happens is like what's happened at the Krameterhof, which is where Sepp started off with this dry land that was just like everything else, and then he Seppified it. And now the people in the community say that the reason why it's so lush the way that it is is that that's how Sep got it. 
is that it was already that way. He's just he just lucked out. That's why Seth's land looks great, and everybody else's looks the same or looks crappy. You know, it has nothing to do with what Seth did. And uh, and I think that uh, the pictures we're looking at at this moment uh, argue that no, Seth Seth does do something. He does make a difference. So, um, anyway, all right. <clears throat> I think most people, they need the acceptance of their neighbors or for others. They do not, they wish to be exceptional based upon the standards that they have observed in others. Not be exceptional by the standards of, say, Seth. Um, they wish for Sep to bless their conventional landscaping. They do not want their land to be modified into, you know, what would be Sep's vision. Um, that's that's been largely my my experience, and, and I guess I'm kind of fishing for like. I cannot help but think that most of you have seen this exact thing, and I'm kind of fishing to hear back from a few of you that, yeah, that's exactly what he's seen. Anybody? No? Okay. Well, then I'm just going to keep reading. Page 50. Here we go. Um, oh, wait. This is the part I already read, right? We could work, could begin. And then uh, the next part I've got is, is that I wanted to create a water landscape of at least 10 retention spaces. It is the best way to reverse the process of desertification in regions like this. I think when we see, like, um, Bill Mollison's book, The Big Black Book, or a lot of other books, when we look at them, lots of ponds, oodles of ponds, seps, the Karameterhof is 110 acres, and it has 72 ponds. In fact, it might even be more by now. But lots of ponds. This is kind of the permaculture way. Lots and lots and lots of ponds. So Sep is thinking of like 10 different kinds of ponds and lakes. A dam was built at the deepest and most narrow end of the valley and was curved and blended in with the surrounding landscape. We dug a trench that was about five meters deep and filled it with a layer of clay to create a watertight aquifuge. So this is going to be the, the design of a, of a key, right? A key in a dam. The gradient should not be steeper than one to two. Only then can the dam be planted easily, which we did. So that'd be kind of like a 30-degree angle. Um, let's see. Digging a hole in the lake area created a deep zone for the lake. In case of Lake 1, it's 12 and a half meters deep. So about 40 feet deep. So a good, a good deep zone really helps to have a nice hold spot. But of course, 
when you kind of do it the way that he's talking about, I can't help but think that in, I don't know, maybe eight years, that'll probably get filled in with silt. But still, um, nice. That's a nice deep spot. The terraces obviously benefit from the lake. The water reflects heat. The soil is saturated with water. Dew and humidity are increased. All these have a very positive effect on plant growth. The intensive vegetable crops are in need of additional watering in summer. This is done by surface irrigation and with drip tapes, with water pumped from the lake. All right, this is the first time I have ever read of sepulcher using irrigation. Has anybody else ever read or heard of any, any SEP project having irrigation? I, I'm kind of thinking like, like he, okay, so he's got some irrigation. I'm, a, I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I'm, I'm glad that he included mention of it in his books, that there's some irrigation happening there. But it also sounds like this is in some flat land. And I kind of wonder if what happened is, is that he says, and I've, and I gotta say, I've heard stories. So like in 2012, um, I was visiting with the translators, uh, who had been to Tamara. And, um, they shared some stories about how difficult it was to be able to do the things that they wanted to do there. How they got this immense amount of pushback. And, uh, and it, they were able to do all the things that they wanted to do, but as something like Sep goes back, and apparently while Sep was away, they undid a lot of the stuff that he did. And Sep refused to do anything else until they put it all back the way it was. Now, this could be nothing more than my foggy memory, but this is, you know, that's that's what I recall from some of the stories. But there were just a lot of stories. I can't remember all of them, but there was a lot of, it was very challenging to be able to get things done. And then, of course, time passed, and then all of the benefits started to roll in, and then they were all starting to be cool with it. So, I'm going to read between the lines of the irrigation, and I'm going to speculate that SEP did put in a bunch of hugelkultur beds, and they're doing great, and they're not irrigated. And then there was a bunch of, like, flat gardens that people wanted to do, and SEP could not convince them to do anything else. So they put in their flat gardens, only they were going to, like, run a sprinkler. And so SEP convinced them to put in a drip system instead. If you're going to irrigate, it's kind of like the wheat and eco scale. If, if these people are like level one or level two, trying to tell them about a level six thing just sounds crazy. So instead, tell them about a level three thing. And they'll think that that's cool. So, so, you know, drip irrigation, they're like, oh yeah, that's, that sounds great. But, um, uh, you know, hugelkultur without irrigation, that sounds crazy. So I'm going to 
speculate that the irrigation that was put in was for non-hugoculture projects. Um, now, at the same time, i got to say that an important ingredient in hugoculture is that you need to irrigate it the first year. But I also know SEP doesn't do that. And uh, he goes he goes down a different path. And it, and that worked out fine for him over there in Dayton. Um, and uh, uh, But the soil, he was getting a lot of silt that was dug up from um, a swampy area. And so uh, uh, that's going to have a lot of organic matter in it. And so that's already got basically established organic matter. All right, anybody have anything to add about the section on Tamara? Because I'm ready to go on to the next one. Uh, he does mention that while they do have, like, ducks and geese and fish, that the community was vegan, but he still put those animals in there not to be eaten, but just to increase the biodiversity. So that can be, you know, pretty handy, regardless of whether you eat meat or not. I, I agree. I mean, <clears throat> let me ask you, what do you, you think is going to happen if you don't put fish in that lake? You're going to get all kinds of little critters accumulating that fish would normally eat, like, say, mosquito larvae. Yeah, I, I think, I think uh, everybody, would, everybody who lives there would go to Sep's house and kill him because <laughs> of the mosquitoes. You know, it's like uh, it's, it's like it would be it would be a disaster. So yeah, introducing a few fish, smart. <laughs> this podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com/slash/paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.